How are we going? Good. Well, suppose that one day you're walking along the street, Dean Street. You've been out shopping, just wandering along, whatever, and a limo pulls up just by the side of the road next to you. And so intrigued, you stop to have a look because it's not every day, I assume, that that uh, happens. Uh, and so you stop and look, and as you do so, the, the driver jumps out of the car, rushes around to the back, and opens the door. And out steps this distinguished-looking older gentleman. Now, now, you look at him, and you don't know much about suits, but it, it's well-fitting. It, look, it looks expensive. You know, his shoes you know, are polished so bright, they're reflecting you know, the street back uh, at you. Um, he, on his wrist, you can see this, this gold watch, and you wonder, maybe there's diamonds on the, on the face as well. And he's looking right at you. In fact, he actually steps towards you with his hand outstretched. And so uncertainly, you take his hand and shake it. You're not sure what's going on, but, but it would be impolite to leave him hanging. So, so you at least shake his hand. And then he says the most amazing thing to you. He says that he is the king of another country. And he wants you to come and live with him and to be his heir. Well, understandably, you're, you're overwhelmed, but before you know it, you're, you're in the limo with him and you're at Aubrey Airport getting onto a private jet and, and taking off. And when you land, you still don't know where you are necessarily, but, but uh, you're again met with a limo that takes you then to this palace. And you're greeted at the door by, by a line of servants and staff, all of whom bow or curtsy to you with great respect and honour. And the older gentleman, the, the king, says to you that this, this is your home now. Now, you don't know where to start, but, but eventually you, you do. You, you start you know, discovering rooms, browsing shelves, wandering the halls, bossing servants around, seeing how that goes, exploring the grounds, doing, doing it all. And as the days go on, you realize that there is yet still more to discover. There's other properties. There's cars and wealth beyond imagining. And along with all this privilege, there's also responsibility too. And you learn this as you increasingly go with the king and increasingly take on more and more of the role and of the place that you've been then given as his heir. Well, it sounds like something that could be a Disney movie. Disney, um, not Disney princess, um, Princess Diaries or, or, uh, or something like that. But what if I told you that, that this story is not something made up, that it's not an imagined fantasy, but it's a reality? So it might look very different, but the reality is for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, that this is what has happened. Paul writes to the Colossians, for instance, of our dramatic change of circumstance, that, that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. To the Ephesians, he writes that God chose us in Jesus before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight, and that in love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will, to the praise of His glorious grace that He has freely given us. Or continuing with this idea of adoption, to the Romans, Paul writes, he says that those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. And the Spirit you receive, it does not make you slaves 
so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we then cry out, Abba, Father. So the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. So it may have sounded like a far-fetched Disney-style story, but for those of us who trust in Jesus, who have experienced his work for us, uh, that we've remembered through communion, this is actually the reality for us. Our lives have been profoundly and radically changed and changed at the deepest level of, of, our dent, of identity, of who we are. We are now citizens of heaven, beloved children of the king and heirs of everything. And this then has implications for us as to affect how we live, to be outworked into a reality in our lives, both in terms of what we enjoy of its privileges but also in terms of what we need to fulfill in terms of its responsibilities. And that's what Paul addresses as he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, a letter that, though it was written nearly 2,000 years ago, it still speaks to the reality of our lives as we live out our faith in Jesus. So we want to look at what Paul says as we continue through chapter 2. We're going to look at having a joy in gospel character. So if you've got your Bibles or your device have it open, Philippians 2, and we're, we're going to camp out here for the night. Philippians 2 at verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So Paul starts this section with, therefore, and so this immediately connects us back with what uh, he's already been saying, stuff that David has already uh, read and quoted to us throughout our time together tonight. So in chapter 2, Paul has been calling the church to unity and to humility, as they then take on the character of Christ who humbled himself to the extent of dying for us, for our sin in our place. And God then as a result of that, exalted Jesus above everyone and above everything so that every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so because of this, because Jesus is Lord and because we recognize him as such, Paul then says, you know, therefore, keep on living in obedience. This obedience is not so much to Paul, though Paul is giving instructions and commands to follow, but it's an obedience to the king, to the Lord who has been exalted above all. And they are to continue in this. In other words, it's an ongoing thing. It's not enough to be obedient to Jesus one time. Yeah, I'll put my faith in him, done, that's good, and I'll, I'll just do as I please from here on. No, it's actually a, a, an ongoing thing. You know, so, so Paul says, you know, don't just obey when I'm with you, you know, just kind of in that context at that time, but but. In all of your life, continue to live in obedience to Jesus in all things. And then he says this amazing thing. He says, continue to work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. 
Don't miss what he says here. He says, keep on being obedient. Keep on working out the implications of your, of your salvation. And we'll get to that in a moment. Because God is working in you to give you both the desire and the ability to obey him. And this is one of the profound things about Christianity. See, God calls us to become like Jesus, which seems like quite the daunting task. But he doesn't just leave us to do that on our own up to our own efforts, but he comes and he helps us. He works in us, changing our hearts, our minds, our worldviews, our priorities, our values, our our identity, our brokenness, all of it. He comes and works in us to change us. He works in us so that we want to obey him, so that now when we're faced with that temptation that we would normally give into, now we don't because Our desire has changed and we actually want to choose something different. We want to choose what God would have us do. And so not only does God, though, give us the desire to obey, he also works in us so that we actually do obey and we fulfill his good purpose in us and for us and through us. See, Paul writes to his friend Titus that the grace of God has appeared and it offers salvation to all people. But more than that, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions and instead to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. God's grace at work in us equips us and empowers us to say no to sin and it enables us then to live in a godly, Christ-like life. So we're not left to our own devices. God is working in us, Paul says. And it's because God is working in us that we then need to work out. The the order is is important here. We don't work out and and labor and try to live like Jesus to try to earn God's favor or, or to please him in that way. We work out because he has first worked in. Our obedience is responsive to the salvation and the grace that he that we receive from him. Dallas Willard says, grace is opposed to earning, you know, that that sense of If I do enough, then then I'll please God and I'll earn this from him or or whatever. So he says grace is opposed to earning, but it's not opposed to effort. We do need to put effort in to working out our salvation or, as Paul writes to Timothy, to train ourselves to be godly. So we've been saved by Jesus. Our identity has been changed then from sinner to saint. We have become children of God and heirs with Christ. We've been picked up from the side of the road and taken to live in a palace as a child of the king. Everything has changed for us. And so because everything has changed, we can't just keep on living the same. There are new privileges to be enjoyed and new responsibilities and obligations to fulfill. They are all ours from that moment of salvation but we need to work them out in our lives to increasingly appropriate them so we live in response to what God has done and what God continues to do. Have you ever heard, so to to illustrate this, have you ever heard of um, like an old married couple, you know, married for 50, 60 years, maybe maybe your grandparents, great-grandparents, whoever it might be, And they say this thing that they love their spouse more now after 50 years of living with them than they ever have before. That they love them more now than even on their wedding day. And it seems really hard to believe. 
Uh, I mean, the wedding, the wedding is this pinnacle event. It's an amazing, wonderful, life-changing day. And then from that day on, there is the reality to work out the implications of their marriage more and more. And so the, the first year goes okay, but then in the second year, each other's selfishness gets to the point where, where neither of them tolerate, tolerate it. But they work through that and figure out what it means to serve and to put the other first and to put their good ahead of their own. Then the kids start to come and they have to figure everything out all over again. Then there's the home loan and the miscarriage, the job loss, the health scare, more kids, family holidays, issues with the in-laws. And then, then their kids you know, are teenagers and, and before they know it, they've moved out again and it's just the two of them. More in love than ever before. Why? Because they've worked out the implications of their wedding day. On their wedding day, they said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, and covenanting themselves to each other with those words, their lives were forever changed. From that moment on, everything was different. And 50 years on, they've worked out the reality of those words. They've lived in them. They've expressed the changed lives, and learnt what that changed life needs to look like. They've expressed the changed lives that such words require. Each day, each year, they continue to work them out. That's what Paul calls us to as we live in Jesus. He says, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in, your absence, in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to act, to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And what's God's good purpose? That we would become like his son, that we become more and more like Jesus as we work out what God is working in us. So then Paul articulates some of the ways that this will look for, for them. Verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Again, Paul calls for behavior from us that matches with our changed reality. The truth is we are children of God. We have been adopted in Christ and named his heirs. And therefore, and before God, we are without fault too. Because in a glorious exchange, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So one of the implications of working out this reality, Paul says, is to do everything, not most things, not, not some things, but everything without grumbling or arguing. You know, I was thinking about this, the, the ancient Israelites grumbled. I remember preaching a sermon on this in my old church and I think, I think it was the arrogance of youth speaking that just had a go at everyone present, so I'll, I won't do that today. But the Israelites, the ancient Israelites grumbled. They spent centuries in slavery in Egypt, and then God, by the power of his mighty hand, affected their deliverance. He saved them. Plague after plague had come against Egypt until finally Pharaoh relented and released them from their bondage. 
And then from the day that they left Egypt, they started grumbling. Pharaoh and his army starts chasing them, so they grumble. They're running out of food and water, so they grumble. They're getting bored with the food that God is providing for them, so they grumble. Moses disappears up Mount Sinai to talk to God, and, and he takes longer than they, think, uh, than they think he should, so they grumble. And God then had them walk around in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation, apart from Caleb and Joshua, had passed away. And then he led them into the promised land. See, they grumbled, complained, argued, whinged, moaned, protested, and they missed out on the life that God was giving them. They missed out on the promised land. They did not work out their salvation. And so Paul says, yep, you know what? Sometimes following God will be hard. Sometimes saying yes to Jesus will mean saying no to other things that you really want to do. Sometimes it will look better to have just stayed a sinner. But don't be like the Israelites who missed out on what God wanted for them. Instead, practice a willing obedience and a happy submission you know, so doing everything without grumbling and arguing. And by doing so, he says, you will become, or, or a better translation would be to, to say that they will show yourselves to be blameless and pure children of God. Then, he says, you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. As we live out our new nature and we display a character that is pure and blameless, as we, as we follow God in a, in a happy and willing obedience and without grumbling and complaining, then we'll stand out from the world around us. It's not necessarily that we're trying to stand out, but we just do, like stars in the sky. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. Yeah, a town on a hill cannot be hidden. No matter what it tries to do, it's full of light. It can't be hidden. And, and he says, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus says that we are light, that, that it's our nature. So we need to then let our light shine by our good deeds. Being saved by Jesus and being brought into his family as a child of the king has to make an observable, visible difference to our lives. It might be being the only one of your friendship group that doesn't swear. It might be that you stick up for the kid who's being left out or, or put down. It might be that you're actually responsible at work and you don't slack off when everyone else does. Whatever it is, being different as we take on the character and likeness of Christ, it stands out. People notice. And it quietly points them to Jesus as we shine like stars in the sky. And this happens, Paul says, as you hold firmly to the word of life. Another way the words here could be translated is to say, as you hold forth the words of life, but both work. <coughs> we are different 
and we shine like stars as we hold to the scriptures as the rule for our life, that we obey it as God's word to us and we live consistent with it. And also we shine like stars as we hold out to a darkened world the offer of life and light that is found in the person of Jesus. Paul then says that if the Philippians were to live like this, with a character and a behaviour that is consistent with God's salvation worked out in their lives, that then he'll experience joy witnessing that, and so should they. In verse 16, he says, Then I'll be able to boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run or labour in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul talks here of being able to boast before Christ because the Philippians proved their faith by their lives, by having worked out their salvation in all aspects of it. And then he says, in effect, that to see the fruit of their lives is worth whatever the cost of it is to him. He talks about being poured out like a drink offering. And we don't know exactly what was involved in a drink offering, but there's clearly this sense of Paul you know, expending his life, of pouring it out as a sacrifice to God and for God. Remember, he's, he's sitting in prison, uh, having experienced all sorts of unjust accusations and unfair trials and threats against his life, and he's there awaiting his death. But he says, anticipating Jesus' well done as he sees the Philippians' character reflecting that of Christ, that's all been worth it and has been a source of joy for him, and it should be to them as well. You know, as I watch my kids grow up and be kind and thoughtful, caring, funny, responsible little humans, I can't help but delight in them and to find joy in who they are and who they are becoming. And Paul looks on the Philippians and he sees their obedience to Christ. He sees their character becoming more like Jesus. He sees their witness to him shining like stars in a universe. And he feels much the same. It's a source of joy to him to see this church that he planted working out their salvation, appropriating their identity in Jesus and responding to God's grace that is at work in their lives. It's the joy of the gospel at work in their lives, forming the character of Jesus within them. And that's what he says. Yes, I rejoice. And you too should be glad about this, about what is going on in your lives. So what does all this mean for us then? As we look at this, I'm sure that there's lots that we could uh, take from this passage, but (coughs) I just have a few thoughts for you. The first one is this that we need to deeply know and appreciate our changed identity in Jesus. See, Paul started the letter by calling the Philippians saints or or holy people and calling them to be who they are. We have experienced something much more than being picked up from Dean Street and taken to a limo, uh, taken to a palace rather. We've been saved and adopted by God himself. We need to know that and know the the love and the choice and the delight of God that he has in us 
We need to meditate on it so that it sinks in deeply and profoundly to impact how we live. And it would do so in all sorts of ways if we knew deeply and securely who we are in Christ. So we need to know and appropriate our our new identity in Jesus. Secondly, I think we need to be encouraged. Sometimes we can feel so defeated by sin or that living like Jesus is just so impossibly hard. And those things are true. But we have here the assurance that God himself is working in us to help us so that we can do that. And as we've already seen from chapter 1, God's working in us will we'll go all the way through. He'll complete what he started. He'll finish the work that he's begun in us. God is working in us to give us desires after him and to empower us to act on them. He's not left us, to our, uh, not left us on our own, but in having saved us, he continues with us to help us to work it all out. So we should be encouraged knowing that God is still working in us. Third, I reckon that we need to be aware that the world is watching us. We are light, Jesus says, and so the reality is people look and they see. So what do they see? Do they see a life and a character that is being formed by loving Jesus? We need to be mindful of this, that that this is not just something we keep to ourselves, but others are are watching and observing us. And in fact, uh, one of the greatest witnesses that we'll give to um, the impact of, of the gospel is our lives lived before people. And lastly then, um, I think we need to have the perspective that it's in our holiness that we find our happiness. Often people might think that being a Christian means missing out on the good and the fun things in life. And, and usually that's around things like alcohol and drinking and sex and, you know, um, no, th- those are the top things really that, that they comment on. But Paul offers us a different perspective. He says that it's as we pursue holiness, as we seek to live like Christ, that's where we find our joy. And we find the joy of a gospel-formed character, that our holiness is actually the best way for us to pursue and to have our happiness, our joy fulfilled. So with those thoughts in mind and the words of Paul uh, ringing in our ears, let's, let's pray together. And let's pray for God's work in us to be worked out in us. So let's pray. God, we just thank you again for your word that speaks to us and reveals you, your nature, your character to us. God, it reveals to us too what you would have of us as your holy people. Your word, God, tells us how you have saved us. And we've remembered that today through communion. And in having saved us, it tells us of now who we are in you and of what that then means for us as we live our lives. So God, I pray that we would go from here with the the certain knowledge, the, the confident hope that you are at work in us. You are at work in us, to give us the desire to live for you 
and also the ability to do so. And God, may we go with the confidence that, that comes from that to know that, that this sin that has been uh, overcoming us, that, that it won't always get in the way because you are working in us. And that good thing that, that we just never seem to do, that, that step of faith that we never seem to take, that, that we will at some time because you are working in us to will us and to uh, enable us to do it. May we go with that hope, God, that confidence. And may, God, then we too seek to live out uh, what you are working in us. May we work it out, God, in, in a way that, that is evident for all to see. And that as they see it, God, they actually see you. They see your character and your life being formed in us. That we would shine like stars in this world. And may we find our, our joy and our happiness in, in knowing you, in loving you, in following you, in living how you would have us to live. We pray this, God, in Jesus' name. Amen.